Welcome to the Recruitment Hackers Podcast, a show about innovations, technology, and leaders in the recruitment industry. Brought to you by TalkPush, the leading recruitment automation platform. Hello, and welcome back to the Recruitment Hackers Podcast. I'm your host, Max Armbruster, and today I'm delighted to welcome on the show Cynthia O'Young, who is the author of a new book, All Are Welcome, How to Build a Real Workplace Culture of Inclusion that Delivers Results. And we're going to be speaking about the results mainly and how talent acquisition can drive that, how the field has changed over the last 20 years, because Cindy has been in the space for a long time and has seen the world change. So Cindy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Max, for having me. I'm excited to have the conversation. Yeah, thanks for coming and congrats on the new book. Before we get into the book and, and, and the lessons, could you share with me and with our audience, you, you know, your curriculum and how you ended up in the beautiful world of inclusion? <laughs> it's a great question. I did not have a very straight path to it. It was a little bit roundabout and curvy. I started my career actually in marketing. I worked for ad agencies doing consumer research and strategic branding. But after a decade of that, I decided it wasn't that fulfilling. And I wanted to do something that would feed my soul a little bit more than just selling products to people, right? That sometimes they didn't actually need. So I went to grad school intending to start my own nonprofit because I had have a brother who is developmentally disabled. And, you know, I'm being Asian and having a disability in the Asian community, culturally, that can be very taboo. And so, you know, my brother being an adult, he had aged out of a lot of services that are given to children um, under the age of 18. And I still on my life plan, I'm still going to do a nonprofit that supports adults in the Asian community with developmental disability. But I decided to put it off because I met some folks who did diversity um, and inclusion work inside companies. And once I heard what they did, which was, you know, I mean, they worked to create access and inclusion for everyone and equal opportunities. I thought to myself, well, that's what I want to do, right? That's something where I can make a positive difference in the world, employ people like my brother and really open doors instead of being the one that knocks on them all the time. So I made the switch. I got my first job in diversity management at a a company called Intuit, which does financial tax software, and have been lucky enough since then for almost 20 years now to work in several types of tech companies, media, global, startup, right, Going, gone into financial services, and now, you know, written the book. Yeah, and because you haven't dropped all the names after Intuit, but I will mention them. Cindy worked at Yahoo, GitHub, Charles Schwab, and most recently AbilityPath and, and Robinhood. So quite a resume and many beautiful companies, I think that have had you know leaders in their field. Of course, not everybody can afford to have a head of diversity and inclusion, can have an officer like small company like myself, 50 employees. I think I have to be the head of diversity myself. And so, right. yeah, how do, you know, is there a way for companies that are on the smaller range, the side of the range to think about, okay, what do I do about diversity and inclusion and who should be in charge? Should somebody be in charge? And at what point do I hire? Can I afford to hire someone? <laughs> Really good question. So yes, absolutely. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned that you should be the head of 
diversity and inclusion at your company? Because yes, you should. And you actually find a lot more leaders these days are taking up that mantle from a very official status, right? The CEO of Wilson, which is a a marketing measurement company here in the US that I, I think operates globally as well. Their CEO announced a few years ago that he was the chief diversity officer for the company. And that's definitely a growing trend. Other CEOs have made very similar kinds of statements. And it's important because this is, it's important to have the senior most leaders of any company, whether you're small, 15 people or 100,000 people, um, really committed um, to supporting diversity and inclusion because your employees take their signal from that right? If they hear that you care about this space, then they're going to be more accountable to supporting the space. And, you know, any company, like you don't actually have to have a dedicated person. You don't have to necessarily have a huge budget for this. Like there's lots of low cost ways to incorporate this into your company, whether that is taking advantage of free training and online seminars that are out there, or even just like buying things like my book, right? And having a book club to have a conversation about different concepts around diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, thinking about who you're hiring and where you're hiring from. Any hiring manager has decision-making power over that, right? And can really think about how to incorporate that diverse lens into how they're sourcing for candidates and how they're considering competencies in this space and who they want to, what perspectives they want to add to their team. So all of these ways are ways in which, you know, no cost, no real like, you know, effort to do other than being intentional about it. Uh, great. Well, let's get into recruitment since that's our focus on the show. And, and so the intention of, you said, on sourcing as well as on the selection front, you know, being more opening the door to other groups. The, yeah, the sourcing question is difficult. Uh, well, it's a little technical because on one hand, you could say, well, I'm going to open the door by basically communicating jobs to as many people as possible using popular channels like social media to just get the word out and so that we're not really restricted to word of mouth, referral networks. Another approach would be intentionally to say, okay, I'm going to go look for people who are hearing impaired and neurodivergent and, you know, work at home moms and, you know, and all, all kinds of categories. And that, then that becomes like a very difficult endeavor because you don't necessarily find these pockets. I, I don't know. I perhaps pardon my ignorance, but I don't know if there's even such marketplaces available to recruiters where they can go and pick by, you know, category by category if if they wanted to do so. Not quite like that, but there are definitely ways, right, to, I think, you can actually do both, right? I think it's important to, like, get the word out to as, as wide an audience as possible, right? So that you can find the best talent from the available pool, right? I mean, that's everyone's goal, right? They want Mm -hmm. to hire the best person, the most qualified person for their jobs. The question is always like, have you actually put out wide and wide enough net to capture the interest of the most qualified best person? for your job. And do you define, you know, an effective sourcing process as, you know, looking for diversity within that? I do. I think most companies should, 
right? And what you can do in terms of like sourcing specifically for people of very, you know, specific and different backgrounds is you can look for organizations that produce pipeline around that. There's lots of technology platforms these days that actually provide matching algorithms for people from diverse backgrounds to different jobs. Some of them are targeted by gender. Some of them are targeted by race. Others are targeted by disability and others for, you know, even, you know, people with military backgrounds, right? So there's a wide variety of those types of companies, you know, depending on the events that you might you know, want to recruit from if you're looking for something very specialized, right? Lots of tech companies, as an example, go to tech conferences. And there are conferences that are very dedicated to like, you know, Afrotech is for the Black community. Grace Hopper, which is a worldwide recruiting event for women technologists, right? Like there are de definitely, if you do your research, there are different places that you can go to to really find and target the, a diverse set of backgrounds who might, you know, be sources of talent for your roles. Yeah, those resources, of course, there's a lot more of them in North America than other places. So again, I think maybe those marketplaces and those talent pools aren't so, and, and technologies are, a lot of them have been designed with the North American market in mind. But as, as we were saying before we started recording, every country has its own battles to fight and they're, they're different from market to market. And so you might not have as many resources available in other parts of the world, but you can still fight your local battles. Can you share, share some of the battles that you know, uh, you've had on the global scene and how that's different than the ones that you fight back home? Yeah, you know, it's, and, and you know, mind you, like over the, the course of my 20 year career, I've seen a lot, right, in different places and a lot of positive progressive change as well that has come. For instance, I remember, you know, back in 2008, right, like in India, as an example, LGBTQ being LGBTQ was against the law. Right. And, and so people didn't feel safe to be out. And so one of the things that we tried to do, our company um, that had offices in India was to make the office a safe space for people who were LGBTQ, right, and where they could be out and be their authentic selves, at least within our, our community, if even if they couldn't be that outside of it. Right. And, you know, there's lots of places around the world where it's still you know, against the law to uh, be identified as LGBTQ. And, and so that's like one very tangible way that people can define that and then look for, you know, those networks of folks that you can have as your support communities, but also as your hiring pipelines, right? Because we all know that, you know, one, one major source of referrals for jobs are people who are in our networks, people we know, people that we can refer in. So the more that you can get connected to different communities, no matter where you are in the world, the more likely you are to be able to find the talent from diverse backgrounds that you need. You know, you can kill two birds with one stone uh, by getting connected with these communities. You make the new hire feel welcome and included, but then you also perhaps reach their friends and, and increase the referral. Yeah. The, the referral pipeline. Absolutely. Yeah. And would you agree that there's been a lot of progress made over the last 20 years and that the champions of inclusion have achieved great results already? I mean, the results, that's in the name of your title. So I suppose that's what I wanted to shine the light on, on 
the fact that a lot of the talk is about, oh, we should do better, we should do, we should do better, but also to celebrate some of the, the progress that's been made so far. Would you, would you mind sharing a few examples? I don't know of company-specific examples, but maybe numbers that illustrate the progress that's been made? Progress can be defined differently, but in different segments and in different industries, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that when I look back over the course of the last 20 years and I see progress, even though it's been slow, it's probably not as much progress as most people want to see, but there has definitely been progress in terms of like the raised level of conversation and dialogue around diversity issues in this space. You look at what happened in the wake of George Floyd's murder here in the US in 2020 and how that sparked global worldwide protests in different um, countries and cities around the world, which was amazing to see. You talk about like the Stop Asian Hate movement, right? That that started early last year and really started kind of when the pandemic started to, you know, blame people of Chinese descent, right, for the virus because it, or, you know, seemed to originate from China. And so you started to see like anti-Asian racism, not just spread in the U.S., but in other parts of the world. And so, you know, a lot of this is no longer within border conversation. It has to be a much broader international conversation and set of issues. And so you know, companies are more dedicated to it. They've committed hundreds of millions more dollars to it in recent years. So that's one result. You see companies adding more women and people of color to their board of directors, which is another amazing result. I mean, if you look at State Street, which, you know, made a very intentional commitment asking companies that they invested in to diversify their boards, over 862 more boards now have at least one woman on their board as a result of their singular initiative, right? So that's a huge result. And then you take it down to the company levels, right? Companies that have been focusing on this, there's lots of studies out there. McKinsey puts out a great one called Why Diversity Matters that has examined companies across industries globally around the world. The ones that have more diversity from a race and gender standpoint on their leadership teams perform better financially right, up to 35% better financial metrics in their results. So there's lots of good evidence out there that shows people that we are making progress, right? Companies that do focus on this are making a difference. And I think it's important to, for people to keep that in mind, even I, though- On the results of the, the top higher performance, if you have a more diverse workforce, it just makes sense because it, it's kind of correlated with Okay, you're hiring on a broader pool, probably more merit-based than, you know, the network. So you're a little bit smarter about it, really. If you're opening up your talent pool and considering more people for the role than your competitors, then over the long run, that will, that will impact your performance. That will make you better and stronger. So, you know, without, without that, I would imagine that would be positively correlated. But it doesn't necessarily need to stem from an inclusion initiative. It can just come from just good business sense, right? You know, you have hit the nail on the head with that. Absolutely. Because it really is like, I talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging work as really, it's just good, like good business practice. It's about creating an effective, as effective an organization as you can have. Because I truly believe like, 
effective organizations have more diversity in them, right? And so when we talk about modifying hiring processes to be more inclusive of people, everything that we're doing is actually to help mitigate bias in that process so that you can hire what you want to, what you, you're setting out to do, like the best, most qualified people, right? And not just like go, going out and getting your neighbor to apply to this role <laughs> you know, or having your best friend, right? It's about- uh, I, don't, I don't talk to my neighbors, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> no, not happening. The, there's been a lot of work in your field around making sure that you, people use the right language on job descriptions. And as you said, make the workplace more welcoming. I, I want to focus you know, one level above or a few levels above the job description, which is the company values and the mission statements and those big guidelines that companies set are some of these, you know, have some of these guidelines and visions and values been a little too masculine in the past where, you know, they would, if, if you kind of trickle them down to individual job description and then interview questions, it would encourage companies to hire basically dudes, hyper-competitive dudes, and that have, they've had to be recrafted in order to create a more inclusive uh, workplace for women. Definitely. I think, you know, anytime you see companies that put out statements like we're an incredibly dynamic and fast paced workplace, that can be perceived as, you know, kind of this code for not women or family friendly. Right. And so that would discourage or could potentially discourage more women from actually considering your workplace. It's similar, like when people say things like, you know, we only like we value rock stars. We're looking for the best of the best in the field. Right. And because that's typically, you know, been defined like rock stars is a very brings to mind a very male masculine image. Right. You don't imagine Alanis Morissette first thing. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when we talk about Tori like Amos, Tori Amos, <laughs> rock star. Yes. <laughs> and they are both rocking it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, even like the best of the best of the cream of the crop, if you look at that traditionally, how that's been defined, it's always been majority male and white. Right. So it, those are definitely ways that you start to kind of limit how people perceive whether or not this is a workplace that I can see myself applying to, let alone like actually working at. But we are fast-paced, we are dynamic, and we do want the best people. So how do I frame it in a more welcoming way? You know, I think first off, go look for some of those inclusive language tools online that are available and start to type in some of these words because it will tell you if they are more gender defined or gender neutral. And usually they will also suggest for you more effective terms that won't necessarily prop up some of these connotations that are very genderized and they're free even better. So like anybody can find them and use them. Uh, and I think specifically, if you think about how do you describe your workplace as, you know, you can always balance it. Like, yes, if you are fast paced, I get it, right? It's better to be open about that than not, right? But then how do you balance that and value balance, right? We want people who like, we're, we're very community minded or, you know, I, I don't know what the quality might be that aptly describes you, but like, how do you make sure that you also signal things that are more family friendly, 
right? And I think that's a really good sort of principle to follow in terms of just having people on your team, just like even review what your, your communications are and get that perspective. Like, does gotta this- say it, it helps a lot that I became a father and that kind of forces me to be a little bit more family friendly. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, because it does change your perspective on life and things. So I don't know if my people have noticed. I, I hope they haven't. They don't think I've, I've become too soft, but <laughs> uh, well, it does oh, change your perspective in a, in a good way, of course. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, you know, soft is not bad necessarily. And also I wouldn't frame it as soft because like being a parent is one of the hardest things in the world. To no, I mean, you know, you know what I mean. I do. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to ask you, where can people get a copy of this book? And who's the perfect audience to buy how to build a real workplace culture of inclusion that delivers results? I suppose, you know, that could attract a wide audience of HR professionals. Who do you want reading your book? And where can they find it? Definitely any HR professional will benefit from this. Any business leader will benefit from this. Any employee who wants to support more diversity, equity, and inclusion in their workplaces, but doesn't know how would benefit from this. And so I encourage people, it's available on across all major online platforms. So if you go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound Bookstore, bookshop.org, right? They all, you can all order through any of those platforms. And all of that can be found on my website, CynthiaOyoung.com. One question I ask all my guests is, is a personal question about a hiring mistake that they've made in the past. And then usually I, I find this to be to be more insightful if you have a specific person in mind that you hired and it was the wrong person mm-hmm. and walking through the mistake that was made so that our listeners can benefit from the lesson learned with, with that because we all make hiring mistakes all the time. <laughs> yeah, you know, I thankfully I haven't made very many hiring mistakes. The one that... <laughs> The, the one that stands out to me is I, I was making a decision between somebody that I had already worked with, right, an internal candidate who was a known quantity and who I thought absolutely could do the job and was great, but was comparing to this external candidate who had incredible bells and whistles in their experience, right? Things that you know, I I don't want to describe specifically, but, you know, Olympian level type of stuff. (laughs) Big numbers, all the right keywords. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally, you know, there are people out there who have like Olympic athlete on their resume. Like this is one of those kinds of people. (laughs) And, and, and I, we, we all want them on our sales team. That's right. And I decided to go with the Olympic athlete type of person. And Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> I would have made the same mistake. <laughs> and, it, you know, it turned out to be a mistake because what I discovered was that e- even though the person had like incredible drive and ambition, that the way that she approached the work that we were doing together, like we were just never on the same page. And so we could never agree. And it was a really difficult working relationship that ended up, you know, with her leaving the company. But, you know, that's a good example of not letting sort of the bells and whistles of a resume kind of overshadow the actual skills and competencies that you really need to be able to work smoothly together. I 
you know, I, I could misinterpret the story as one where, you know, you should have listened to your gut, but I know that is wrong language to use when talking about, when, when talking with a, an inclusion specialist as yourself, you should be like, no, don't listen to your gut. <laughs> you know, listen to, listen to what you listen to the interview, listen to the candidates and, and don't follow your instincts compulsively either. Yeah. But yeah, maybe more broadly here, we're seeing, you know, the resume was better. But the other candidate, the internal candidates, you would have had better results with because you know what you were dealing with. That's right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, lovely chat. Thanks for coming on. And if people want to connect with you, should they jump on LinkedIn or? Absolutely. They can find me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Twitter at Cindy O. Young is my handle and or connect with me on Facebook. Great. Thanks, Cindy. Thank you so much. And that was Cindy Oyong, author of All Are Welcome, How to Build a Real Workplace Culture of Inclusion that Delivers Results. If you enjoyed the interview, get a hold of the book. For me, it was a reminder that inclusion and diversity initiatives do not have to be experienced as a new set of rules and quotas to abide by, but can be defined at each country and each company's level as a journey to find a new competitive edge in the search for talent. Some segments of the population are not currently considering a job at your company because of the language that you use or the message you portray. Rethink, about, rethink that communication in order to attract more and better talent because that's what's going to help your company perform the best. Hope you enjoyed it and that you'll be back for more. Remember to subscribe. Thank you.